Hi, everybody. It's so great to have you with us. Uh, welcome to church. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Ashley Matthews. I'm the associate lead pastor here at Trinity. Uh, and this is the Easter season. Y'all, happy Easter to you. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And for the last several weeks here at Trinity, we have been preaching through the book of Revelation as a way of reminding ourselves that uh, even in the midst of a still broken, a still hurting, a still very uncertain world, Christians all over the world are celebrating and rejoicing in the fact of the resurrection, in the hope of the resurrection. Jesus is on the throne. God is, in fact, still telling a good story, even through the hard stuff, the uncertain stuff, the painful stuff. I was thinking about that uh, this week as I heard someone, a quote uh, that someone uh, wrote in response to the verdict given from the George Floyd trial, and I just want to share it with you before we look at the Bible together. Uh, he writes, one drop of justice fell today. It will not quench the dehydration of centuries, but sometimes I look up and it looks like rain. Amen. Through this revelation in, um, in the Bible, we are given the opportunity to like, peer into the reality of heaven, into what's happening in God's sphere all around us, and to take hold of that reality and pull it into our own as a way of giving us hope for today. In other words, like um, this person was saying, we're meant to look up so that we can see the sure hope that rain is coming. And that matters for today. It helps, it changes, impacts, and forms uh, the way that we live. So we're going to read uh, Revelation 4, the whole chapter, uh, arguably one of the most beautiful and important moments in all the Bible. Uh, we'll read and then pray and see what the Lord has for us. This is Re Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian. And around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones. And seated on the throne are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there's something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with a face like a human, and the fourth like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, God, we bless the reading of your word. We thank you, Jesus, for the incredible um, opportunity to peer into heaven 
And I just wanna ask you, Holy Spirit, wherever we are now, wherever we're gathered, in homes where distractions abound, outside, in backyards, will you gather us, Lord, to yourself? Help us, Jesus, to hear and to see, to comprehend what you have for us, Lord. It's hope, Jesus, that we need, and you are the source of our hope. So we look to you now, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, what a beautiful um, and yet ad- admittedly sort of abstract uh, vision of heaven and, and part of the Bible. Uh, many of us probably have heard this passage before. We read it and think to ourselves similarly. Yeah, it's a really powerful. It's really beautiful. But it's also, I don't exactly know what to do with it. And can we really be sure what heaven is like? Because we have so many questions even after reading a text like that. And maybe because we can't really be sure what heaven is like, Uh, Maybe we really shouldn't even bother speculating. Like, really, how much does it change or impact or influence how we live now, um, our faith in Jesus? And I think that's actually a really great question, a really important one. Probably many of us have, um, even those of us with really ardent devotion to Jesus, really sincere faith, probably have fuzzy understandings about heaven, what happens uh, when we die or where this is all headed. But listen to what Paul says. This is Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes, Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. One more time. Set your hearts on things above, he says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So Paul apparently thought that there was some reason to actually meditate, think on, reflect, set your heart on, on things above, to give uh, these things some thought. I don't think that Paul meant that we should be thinking mostly, primarily, or always about heaven itself. No doubt many of you have heard uh, the saying, bears repeating in a moment like this, uh, so-and-so is so heavenly-minded, she's no earthly good. And I think that that's a real thing. We can become so focused on the afterlife that we sort of lose the significance of our faith for today. But I don't think that's at all what Paul was suggesting. What he was saying is that we should be thinking about Jesus and we should be thinking about him and the world around us from a heavenly perspective. That that is a different perspective. And the more we are aware of what's happening in the spiritual world around us, maybe the more insight the more sort of heavenly wisdom we have for the life that we're living uh, now. Heaven is not the point of your faith. The afterlife, what happens to you when you die, is not the point of your faith. And in the same way that when we make that the point, or like when we make going to church the point, which is also not the center or the point of your faith, our faith is meant to be about a lot more than what we believe about an afterlife or where we are on Sundays. Jesus is the point Uh, of your faith. Of course, he absolutely is. But what we have to remember is that Jesus, because he is the point, Jesus is telling a story, a story that matters to him very, very much. And where that story is headed matters to him very much. So the question is, do we know where it's all headed? Do you know? Because if it matters to him, it should matter to us. I read um, this story several years ago, and it, it comes to mind now when I read these passages or think about heaven. I want to read it to you. It's from uh, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. 
And he tells this story. He says, in 1952, young Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off of the Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother, in a boat alongside, told her she was close and that she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. When I hear that story, I am reminded of the significance of what John is trying to do. Jesus came to John to give him these visions of heaven in order to give us a glimpse of the shoreline. If you don't know where you're headed, it impacts or informs how you get there. You know what I'm saying? Think about that for a second. Knowing your destination, where your life is meant to go, is going to inform the journey and how you get there. And some of us have just settled for a very fuzzy notion of where we're headed. And as a result, there are things that we're missing out on that God very much intends for us to have, namely the encouragement that you need to know that's a lot closer to you than you probably feel like. God is closer to you. The things you hope for are closer to you. The reason that John received these visions was so that he could see into heaven offer that vision to the church in front of him as an encouragement for the inevitable persecution, trial, difficulty of what lie ahead for them. They were meant to go together. If all I can see is the fog, I lose heart. My mind weakens, my soul weakens, my spirit weakens. And Jesus has basically come to the church in the first century, and I believe to the church today, to say you are so much closer, and it's all so much closer to you than you're able to see. So what I want to do is talk about this vision just in short, very briefly, and I'll give a summary of the vision, and then I want to say two things to you about heaven itself. That's really what we're going to talk about, is two things that we need to know about heaven that I think make a difference for the way that we live now. But first, the vision itself. John is praying in the spirit, and he sees a door open into heaven, we're told. That's the symbol. A door opens up, and John is invited to come up into heaven. And when he gets there, what he sees is God, God Almighty, the triune God, on a throne. And that throne is surrounded by 24 other thrones. And on those thrones sit 24 elders, we're told. 24 being, of course, uh, 12 plus 12, likely a representation of the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. This is, in Bible speak, a renewed and restored church, the people of God. Spanning the Old and the New Testament, they've come together now as the wider family of faith before the throne. We're also told that in addition to these 24 elders, that there are on either side of God's throne these four living creatures— which are incredible to even try to imagine. They're a kind of mashup of animals. In, order, in other words, they are, in Bible speak, again, a representation of all that is non-human 
created life. It's the Bible's way of saying humans are the only ones in heaven and surrounding the throne of God. All life comes from God. All life returns to God. Incredibly, not only are the creatures there, so non-human and created life, these creatures are there, but they're not just there. They're also leading worship, if you remember from the text. They're the ones who sing out first, holy, holy, holy. And as they sing, it's in response to their call to worship that the elders come off their thrones and lay down their crowns. I think this is one of the reasons that C.S. Lewis was so fascinated with talking animals, because he saw into this, this picture of heaven and thought, man, it's really incredible to imagine, like in a restored creation, in God's renewed earth, we're not the only ones uh, who are there. It's a really incredible scene. Um, and John doesn't explain it much, he just tells us what he sees. So now I want to say two things that matter in light of all the symbol and really powerful uh, imagery that we see here. Two things we can sort of hang our hat on to know about heaven. The first is this. Heaven is where we go when we die. That's what we can know. Um, It's where we go when we die. Philippians 1, Paul says, to be away from the body is to be with the Lord. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, uh, today you will be with me in what he calls paradise. In the Jewish imagination, paradise referred to what they understood to be present heaven. It was where the faithful, after death, went to be with God. Here's the thing. N.T. Wright describes this place of present heaven. He describes it this way. Heaven is, he will say, life after, life after death. Think about that. You die, and then there is a life after death. That's present heaven, but that is not the end of the story. We've said it every week. There is a resurrection to follow. There is a renewed creation uh, to follow, a second step in what is a two-step process, and sometimes that's the part that we forget. But in some ways, resurrection is easier for us to imagine because it is, in so many respects, very similar to the life we live now. Present heaven, however, is what we're seeing into in Revelation 4, and it's the part that is admittedly more shrouded in mystery. But what you can know and need to know is that the people you love, and this is not just like sort of abstract, imaginative exercises for many of us. All of us have lost people we love. All of us are trying to imagine what life is like for them. And what you need to know, according to the Bible, and can know, is that they are now, presently, with God. That He is very real. They are also very real. Their life is real. When Moses and Elijah appear on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, um, they do not appear to him um, as uh, ghosts. They are recognizably human. Ghost is a topic for another day, but I got a lot of thoughts on that. But what you need to know is that there is a difference between ghosts and the people that you love who are with Jesus in heaven now. Their lives are full and they are with the Lord. That's what we know. And we need to hold on to it. They are not yet, however, in their resurrected bodies. That day is also coming. New heavens, new earth, and a resurrection. So we have to hold on to those things, both hopes. All right, the second thing. So heaven's where we go when we die, and heaven is just, according to the text, on the other side of the door, John says. What that means is that we are right now surrounded by the reality of heaven. The people you love 
who you imagine, Jesus himself, do not exist at an impossible distance from you. According to the Bible, they are as close to you as the other side of a door. And that matters to you once you've lost somebody. It matters to those of you who love Jesus. You either imagine him at an impossible distance or he is as far from you as the equivalent of a veil that can be lifted or a door that can be opened. We spend a lot of time imagining heaven and earth, I think, like this. Like they exist in this distance from one another, heaven over here and earth over here, and we're not sure how far between, but it's like a lot, probably far. When really the picture that the Bible paints is one more like this. The heaven and earth are right up against one another. God's space and our space pressing into each other, according to the Bible, until the day when they will finally be like this, interlocked, like two hands, two fingers, interlocking over one another. Why does this matter? Uh, because what happens if we don't? I think, is that we become increasingly, um, to use the language of Charles Taylor and others, we become increasingly disenchanted, meaning it becomes harder and harder for us to think spiritually, to feel spiritually, to talk spiritually. Um, that all of a sudden sounds like magical thinking, and magical thinking sounds bad and like something you shouldn't do after approximately the age of 10. Anyone who's doing it is either weird or silly. It's foolish that as we grow up, we become increasingly mature, uh, wise, more grown up, more uh, disenchanted. And therefore, we become less and less attuned in touch with our spiritual instincts. Then what happens is that all the things that are spiritual are harder for us to do. Prayer is really hard. Uh, worship is really hard. Uh, talking about God becomes really, really hard. Those, just, those things seem less and less natural to us. We have a harder time. But we need to be reminded, and I believe are being reminded by this passage in the Bible, that there is, in fact, y'all, more to reality than what we can see. And that may sound overly simplistic to you, but ask yourself a question, do you live like that's true? Do you live like there's more to reality than what you can see? That there's more to you than matter, than the bits of you that make up who you are? And how do you tend to those parts of who you are? How do you tend to those parts of the world around you? For all of our efforts, for example, to convince ourselves that something like sex, for example, is, you know, just bodies, just casual. For all of our efforts to convince ourselves that that's the fact, deep down, and I talk to a lot of people, there is something in us that just knows better. You have to work really hard, actually, to convince yourself that sex should just be that thing that happens. And then I ought to be able, the more grown up I become, the more mature I become, the wiser I become, to just walk away and pretend like it doesn't mean anything when something inside of you knows better. You have had to learn to be disenchanted. You don't come into this world that way. It's increasingly something that we're taught. And I think something that we should be suspicious of. So are we so sure 
that the more disenchanted we become, the wiser we've grown? It's a good question. It's a question C.S. Lewis was asking, and let's just be real, you knew he was going to make an appearance in this sermon when we started. But this is a quote from The Abolition of Man. It's just too good not to read. Listen to what he says. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ, the heart, and demand the function. He's talking about wider society. Wider society removes the heart, but demands the function of the heart. We make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. In other words, there is a world around you that is demanding love and virtue and enterprise of you while increasingly teaching you out of the part of you that he is saying is your heart, is your chest, the part of you that is spiritual. So having a mind that can conceive of and a heart that longs for a heaven right on the other side of the door is a way, as Paul would say, setting our mind on heavenly things is the way that we hold on to our chests, to the part of us that knows that there's more than what we can see, that connects our virtue to something outside of ourselves. So here's the question, and I'll leave you with this. Are you becoming, have you become a person without a chest? Meaning, do you feel increasingly sort of hollowed out by the way you think? Your head is full, but the rest of you feels less and less connected to something, less and less natural as it moves through the world with other feeling things. If so, this is the invitation, I believe. And even if you wouldn't describe yourself that way, you don't necessarily feel like a person without a chest or hollowed out in your feelings, but maybe you feel really fuzzy about your ideas about heaven. You just don't like thinking about it. Can we work to reclaim this week a part of our story? You are made to worship God in your body in this earth. It is the most natural part of who you are. And some of us have some reclaiming to do. And the way that we would do that very practically, according to Paul, is to set our mind on heavenly things. Set our mind above where Christ Jesus is seated on the throne, he says. So here are two questions for your reflection, and then we'll pray. When you think of heaven, how do you feel? Talk to God about it. Pay attention to what happens in your body when you try to talk about or someone talks to you about heaven. And bring that before God. Number two, what would it look like for you to practice setting your mind on things above this week? Spend some time asking yourself that question. What does that mean for me? How would I go about doing it? Because if we will, I think what Paul was saying, what John is saying, is if I can set my mind there, then I will see, comprehend, feel more in touch with and attuned to God's face, to God himself all around me. May it be so for you this week. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come, Lord. Help us to pray. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.